I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Gadget Criminalist. Today, Gary Ridgway, written by Kevin Jennings. This is a big one. Gary Ridgway. He's like one of those serial killers where you're like, yeah, I've heard of him. He's bad. <laughs> Let's just jump into it, shall we? If you're new here, welcome to the show. The format of The Casual Criminalist is that I've never read this before. Kevin has written it for me, and we're going to explore it together, dear audience. Let's jump in, shall we? There's a certain perception people have when it comes to serial killers. Though they come in different forms, there's usually that one trait you can point out as how they were successful in their crimes. Some are considered charming and handsome, like Ted Bundy, which made it easier for him to lure his victims. Others have the ability to cover their tracks, like the Golden State Killer, a law enforcement officer who was even tasked with investigating some of his own crimes. Some killers are just straight-up geniuses, like Leopold and Loeb. No, they weren't! (laughs) We made a video about this! (laughs) This, and I guess Kevin didn't write that video, because it's like the the, the genius killers of Leopold and Loeb were not geniuses. It's just this kind of urban myth that they were smart. They were really not smart. They got caught very quickly, and their crimes were dumb. Like, it was really dumb. I wish people would stop calling Leopold and Loeb geniuses, because they weren't. And other serial killers simply look terrifying or evil. Exactly what you'd expect from a psychopathic psychopathic killer. It's got to be really bad if you look like a psychopath. Like, if you look like a murderer, right? People are like, oh, that dude's scary. It's like, he's super nice. He just looks like a murderer. But Gary Ridgway was none of those things. Families of the victims saw him in court, and some described him afterwards as being a pathetic worm. They felt he was more mouse than man, and were disappointed that this was the person that had eluded police for so long. He wasn't charming or intelligent, and he wasn't muscular with tattoos that said, I love to kill. Even Ed Kemper, who came across as gentle and unassuming, was six foot nine and over 300 pounds. There was no question how he was able to overpower his victims. Nobody would have ever looked at Gary and thought that he was the United States' second most prolific serial killer. I did not realize that he was number two. That's crazy. And they certainly wouldn't think that he could outsmart the police for decades. So how the hell did this happen? Growing up in Red Flag Factory Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February the 18th, 1949 in Salt Lake City, Utah to parents Mary and Thomas. He was the middle child of three boys, and when he was 11, his family moved from Utah to Washington, in the city now known as SeaTac, a portmanteau of the nearby cities of Seattle and Tacoma. <laughs> really? There's a, I feel like, there's, isn't there an airport called SeaTac? Like, there's an airport there. I didn't actually realize, I thought that was just the name of the airport. I did realize they were like, oh, yeah, there's a city between these two other cities. What should we call it? We'll just mash together the two names. <laughs> Come on. A little more creativity, please. Pretty much everything about Gary's early life was a giant red flag. He came from an abusive household. Ding! Both parents were engaging in corporal punishment. Ding! However, it was Mary that truly ran the show. She was bega- regarded as being controlling and domineering. Ding! <laughs> I'm just making all these dings for like, it's going to be like, then he tortured animals. Ding! Then he abused, then he uh, was an arsonist. Ding! (laughs) So all these things. He loved guns. Ding! (laughs) And was verbally abusive towards everyone in the family. Thomas never stood up to her, even in the face of physical violence. If she got angry and broke plates over his head, his only reaction would be to stand up and leave the room. But there was much more going on that was going to warp Gary's perception of reality than verbal and physical abuse. As many of you have probably experienced, one of the more frustrating parts of having a sibling slightly older than you comes from the expectations they set at school. Now, I was like the oldest sibling, and then a step family, and I was not the oldest, but that like it was we were in the same school year, so it wasn't. As I know, also my sister did get better grades than me, my stepsister, generally. But uh I don't know, I didn't really care. I never really thought about it until now. Is that okay? It was generally expected that you would excel at the same things they did, and to fall short of the bar they set was considered a failure, even if that meant you got an A- instead of an A. My brother was one grade ahead of me, so for 13 years I had the exact same teachers he had, and it was absolutely hell. Granted, I'm a bit smarter than him. (laughs) Why was it so bad then? It'd be like, hey, hey, brother, 
brother, you remember those grades you got? Yeah, baby, I beat you again, brother! But there were still other factors. In elementary school, he had exceptional handwriting, whereas my penmanship is still so atrocious that it's genuinely 50-50 whether or not I'll be able to read my own writing. My handwriting is also terrible, Kevin. But I don't really try. Like, if I wanted to write neatly, I could. But it's like, generally, I don't need to, because no one else is reading that except for me. I can read my own handwriting. Sometimes I look at something from back in the day, or like, you know, a couple of years ago, I'd be like, not really sure what that says. <laughs> Context is important. The same can definitely not be said for Gary. Gary's brother Gregory, who was one year older than him, was an exceptional student. He was bright, popular enough to run for student office, and went to a good college to study physics. Greg was the most accomplished of the three children, was of course the favorite child, and set a bar so high that Gary could walk cleanly under it while carrying his report card of straight Ds. Gary was as far from extraordinary as could be. According to the eventual prosecutor in the case, quote, the only time he genuinely cried was when he talked about how afraid he was of being put on the short bus. For anyone, why is a short bus? I've heard this term used before. Does it mean like for kids who are a bit dim? Like, because someone would be like, oh, you get on the short bus or you missed the short bus or something, or you're going to be on the short bus. I know this from like movies, but I, don't, I never really thought about it much. For anyone not in America, the short bus, aside from being a literal description, is a special school bus that only picks up the developmentally challenged kids. Yeah. That's kind of bad, isn't it? They should have a regular bus, because otherwise you get things like you're on the short bus. Except we didn't call the kids that rode the short bus developmentally challenged back in the 80s and 90s. No, we didn't. So you can sure as hell bet that Gary's classmates wouldn't have called him that in the 50s and 60s either. As damaging to his psyche as being compared to the vastly more intelligent Greg was, it likely would have paled in comparison to being told by his classmates that he was a, quote, retard. He did manage to avoid this fate, but only barely, as his IQ was measured in the low 80s. It didn't take long for Gary to begin manifesting symptoms of his abuse and psychological damage. There were the typical red flags you would expect, such as starting fires, torturing and killing animals, and being obsessed with true crime. <laughs> Is that really an indicator? Is people who are obsessed with true crime actually more likely to do crime? I don't think so. Surely not. Um, but the, the animals and torturing and the fires yeah yeah i mean yeah, of course some of this involved him and his brothers shooting birds with a bb gun which was probably considered pretty normal at the time but killing a cat by trapping it inside a freezer was definitely not normal and certainly should have raised some eyebrows yes look shooting birds is like let people shoot birds it's like that's some people would even call that a sport i mean probably not like pigeons with bb guns but like peasant hunting or whatever people do that but like trapping a cat in a freezer no that's not normal in any way whatsoever <laughs> and even a kid shooting birds would be like mm, mm. gary was also a chronic bedwetter until he was a teenager i also isn't that an indicator of weirdness as well like doesn't that indicate something this naturally resulted in more verbal abuse from mary usually berating him in front of his brothers yeah that's really gonna solve the problem your kid's wetting the bed what would you shout at him for wetting the bed yeah it's really gonna fix it mary well done you genius I wonder where Gary got all of his smarts from. But as he got older, things took a much more disturbing turn. When a 13-year-old Gary wet the bed, Mary would take him to the shower while practically naked herself to personally clean him, sparing pe paying special attention to the dirtiest parts. Um... This was hardly the only way in which she was inappropriate with her son either. Mary worked in the men's section of a J.C. Penny and liked to wear revealing clothing to work. She would tell a young Gary about her work measuring men for suits, talking about how they would get aroused when she measured them, and even describing the smell of their crutches to him. That is weird. Like that is weird. It's like not normal. Like <laughs> so. Oh yeah. Okay. So she's a bit of a weirdo. A little bit of sexual abuse going on there. And it's like, but like obviously that's wrong and weird but like describing the smell of crutches what are you thinking about what's going on <laughs> all of this left gary understandably rather f***ed up he had extremely conflicted feelings with part of him lusting after his mother and the other part wanting to kill her to eliminate the family's big problem and of course in the venn diagram where those two parts overlapped gary also talked about fantasies of having violent sex with his mother during which he would slit her throat that is a sentence that no one should ever have to read. Violent fantasies about having sex with his mother during which he'd dream of, uh, dream of slitting her throat. Like, what the f*** is that? <laughs> While Mary was the most abusive of Gary's parents, that also didn't stop Thomas from also helping to destroy his brain in ways that would severely shape his future. Thomas was a bus driver and also worked part-time at a mortuary. He would drive around with Gary in the car, complaining the entire time about all the sex workers that lined the streets. Obviously, he would then leave Gary in the car while he went to patronize those same women that he was complaining about. As soon as he said that, as soon as, as soon as that left my mouth, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he'd, he'd complained about all the sex workers. I immediately in my mind, I was like, he's going to sex workers. Just no question. No question. It's as if everything in Gary's life was conditioning him to despise women, but the long diatribes about the horrible and disgusting sex workers that he was more than happy to hire was far from the worst influence Thomas would have. You see, one of his co-workers at the mortuary had a penchant for necrophilia. Not only did he not feel this was something that his employers needed to be made aware of so they could stop it, he also felt that it was a perfectly acceptable topic to talk about to his son. It didn't take long for this to become a fantasy of Gary's. He loved the idea of it because the victim couldn't talk, so there was no way to get caught. That's, that's, <laughs> the logic behind that is so disturbed, Gary. What the f***, man? They'd never feel a thing and never even know it happened. <laughs> Gary's hatred of women and tendency towards violence were only going to increase. He began stalking girls in the neighborhood that had rejected him, though it's unclear how many such girls there were. Despite his low IQ and dyslexia resulting in him being held back two grades, he was at least somewhat socially adept. Is it? It's weird. Wasn't his brother super smart? It's not that common to have, like, Surely, like, when you've got kids, but if both pet and one's smart and the other's dumb, they're the most similarly genetic people that exist. Why? I don't know that many siblings where one's really smart and one's really dumb. They're usually, like, at least within the same ballpark. A classmate at community college would state that Gary never had any trouble getting a girlfriend or a date. He wasn't a hated social outcast, and people generally thought he was nice, even if he was a bit weird. More than anything, Gary was just a completely forgettable individual. <laughs> He's a bit weird. Don't go in the freezer, there's cats in there! <laughs> what the f? He was average height, below average intelligence. <laughs> Gary just keeps pointing this out, how dumb he is. This <laughs> feels a bit. I look, I'm, it's Gary, we're it, Ridgeway. But, like, this is exactly the sort of thing that f***ed him up. Just being told he's dumb all the time. And also his mum being a, a weirdo. He was average height, below average intelligence, but not quite developmentally challenged. Below average looks, but not remarkably ugly. He was just kind of there. His high school football coach would even describe him as nondescript. Maybe that's why the beautiful killers were so much easier for the police to catch. Nothing really seems to have come from those stalking incidents, but I did mention an escalation of violence. When Gary was 16, he came across a six-year-old boy playing around while dressed up as a cowboy. He invited the boy into the woods so they could build a fort together, but this never happened. Instead, when they were in the woods, Gary pulled out a knife and stabbed the boy in the side, puncturing his liver. Now, the little boy asked him, why did you kill me? As Gary walked away laughing, he simply replied, I always wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. Luckily, he didn't stick around to make sure that it actually succeeded, and our livers are uniquely able to regenerate from damage or even partial removal. Well, that's good. I'll drink to that. The boy... <laughs> it's a bad joke. I know how I'll your liver. The boy survived, but his attacker wasn't identified. He had never met Gary before, and the teenager that stabbed him was too nondescript. <laughs> They're like, he's trying to describe it. How did he... So, uh, can you can you describe your attack for me? Uh, generic? <laughs> he was a generic... What color was his hair? Gray? <laughs> what color was he? Gray? <laughs> Just generic. <laughs> it's also possible that Gary drowned a boy in the lake when he was a teenager, he claimed. You know what's crazy? I, the thumbnail of this video is already done, and I've looked at it, and I've looked Gary Ridgway in the face, and I couldn't describe him now. He's so generic looking. He's so, like, in my mind, there's other people we've covered on this channel, I'm like, yeah, I know what they look like. I could describe Ted Bundy and stuff like that, or um, the clown dude, John Wayne Gacy, could describe him easily. Like, if a sketch artist came down, I'm pretty sure we could, like, sketch up a pretty good look, good, uh, good sketch of these dudes, but... This dude, I'm like, no, I don't know what he looks like. And I just saw him like five minutes, uh, 20 minutes ago. <laughs> and I can't describe him at all. There'd be no shot. It'd just be a generic looking dude. It's also possible that Gary drowned a boy in a lake when he was a teenager. He claimed that even though he had a vivid memory of doing so, he wasn't sure whether or not it actually happened. Although records indicate that two boys drowned in a lake the year after the year Gary specified, it's unclear whether or not he was responsible for either of them. He only had a memory of drowning one boy, which presumably means at least one of the two recorded deaths was an accident. It's certainly possible that both were accidents, and he could have created a false memory after hearing about an accidental drowning as a way to indulge what at the time were still only fantasies. Isn't it crazy that he's not sure whether he killed someone? Memories are wild. Like, we talked about this before, like how unreliable it is, and like witness, eyewitness testimony and stuff, and how there's a genuine discussion about whether that should be allowed in court because people are terrible with memory. The only reason I'm leaning towards it being a false memory is because the thing is because this is the only alleged crime that Gary wasn't unapologetically certain about having committed. 
Anchors away. In 1969, at the age of 20, Gary finally graduated high school. At <laughs> 20? Why is he supposed to graduate high school? 18? He's two years. Can you imagine being 20 years old and still in high school? Isn't that weird? Hello, fellow children. I just watched the final episodes of that Better Call Saul. And they go back to the start and it's like uh, Walter White and Jesse Pinkman cooking meth in their trailer. And I was like, wait, why have they changed the actor for Jesse Pinkman? And then it's like, no, 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 he's just like 45 now and he's supposed to be 16. And you're like, oh. Yeah, people got old. Well, like, not 45, but he looks old. I thought they'd replaced the actor. They should have de-aged him. They did it with that Irishman movie. Couldn't they have done it for Breaking Bad? Uh, for Better Call Saul? This, the budget for this must be insane. He also married his 19-year-old high school girlfriend, Claudia Craig. Their honeymoon would be short-lived, however, as he enlisted in the Navy and got shipped off to active duty. However, were it not for the Vietnam War, this may not have been possible. Following some issues that arose during the First and Second World Wars, the U.S. military insti- instated... Instated? Instigated? Instated? Inst- instated is a word, isn't it? Yeah. A minimum IQ... <laughs> Jesus, Simon, sometimes I wonder how big your brain is. It stated a minimum IQ requirement for those who wish to serve. It was determined that those that didn't meet this requirement had caused a lot of problems because of their difficulty to train. Gary was right at or possibly just below the line, but with the United States fighting an unpopular war resulting in the utilization and subsequent dodging of the draft, the Navy may have been willing to fudge a point or two to secure an actual willing recruit. He was stationed aboard a Navy supply ship, and while he did see combat in his short military career, it doesn't seem to have had a profound impact on him. Then again, naval combat on a supply ship is a lot different than having your boots on the ground in the jungles of Vietnam. However, this short period was still very formative for Gary. He had developed an insatiable appetite for sex, and it was here that his obsession with sex workers began. It probably actually began years earlier in the car with his father, but Gary wasn't really known for his insightful introspection and analysis. While serving in Vietnam, he began hiring sex workers constantly, eventually catching the clap. If you're unclear, Simon, that's gonorrhea. No, Kevin, I know what the clap is. But thank you for clarifying. This painful turn of events filled both Gary's heart and urethra with a burning hot rage. So, <laughs> something that he felt was entirely the fault of the sex workers. Yes, Gary, it's their fault, Gary. <laughs> you big brain. But just like his father, this hatred of sex workers wasn't going to stop him from employing their services. After some antibiotics to clear up his condition, he was right back to the red light district where he continued to have sex without protection. Yes, Gary, it's their fault, Gary, isn't it, Gary? <laughs> Oh, the small brain of Gary Ridgway. Gary was honorably discharged from the Navy in 1970, only to go back home and discover that his wife had been having an affair while he's gone. Gary was (laughs) outraged. Outraged. How can he do this to me, wife? And she's like, Gary. Gary, Gary. How was Vietnam, Gary? I'd say it'd be pretty hypocritical for him to be angry about this, given his behavior in Vietnam. Exactly. But it's clear that he didn't think sex workers were people, and thus it didn't count as cheating. (laughs) Gary, Gary. But it does, Gary. The couple got divorced, and Gary's hatred of women continued to grow. While the infidelity on both of their parts... <laughs> it's like sex workers aren't people. Gary, what the f*** is going on? Your brain is so broken, Gary. While the infidelity on both of their parts was the final straw, it wasn't the only strain on their marriage. His mother, Mary, remained a constant, domineering presence throughout their marriage. She wanted the couple to move into her house, and Claudia even cited Mary's dominance over Gary as the reason for their marriage ending. Yeah, Claudia, it was several things, wasn't it? Like, also, maybe the affair. Also, maybe Gary's multiple liaisons with sex workers. And, um, yeah, but also, <laughs> do you want to move into the house of your mum? Who's weird no i don't gary (laughs) gary managed to get a job at a truck painting company in renton washington where he would remain employed for the next 30 years okay settled in somehow he managed to find himself a new wife marcia winslow he's not so surprising we say i mean he's a bit dim i mean he's quite dim if he almost got rejected for the navy but he seems he was socially competent so it's not and he's like just generic looking he's not bad looking he's not good looking he's generic looking and yes it's not surprising as long as she doesn't look in the freezer, you know. But Marcia wasn't Gary's only new love. It also found the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He became fervently religious, possibly in an attempt to combat the hatred and sick desires that were consuming him. Oh, Gary, you should have seen a psychiatrist, not Jesus. And like any born-again Christian, Gary knew that there was nothing more important than spreading the word of the Lord God and Savior. He would go on proselytizing door to door and would read the Bible aloud at both home and work. I'm sorry, I have a particular gripe with this because my grandparents, uh, like, well, they're, they're dead now, but they were like 
evangelical Christians. Like they were like, you, you know, come to church. You, you'll love it. Let me tell you some stories about Jesus. And I was like, I don't want to. I don't like it. It's not for me. I remember I got in so much trouble on Christmas. I was a kid. I must have been like 14 or something. And my granddad would have this ability just to go on ran. We'd just be sitting around like having Christmas dinner or whatever, or like family, whatever. Like it was a big family, maybe like 20 of us. And then we'd sit around the table. And then my granddad would just burst into a story. I remember he was like, and that reminds me of the Bible story of Moses being put in the basket and floating down the river. <laughs> and everyone's like, okay, granddad. And I'm like, granddad, what's that got to do with anything? How does it remind you of what we were just talking about? Because it was just random. <laughs> he was just lost for words. He didn't have anything. And he wasn't that old at the time. He was probably in his 70s, maybe late 70s. So he wasn't like conquers yet. And my my stepmom just gives me this look like, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't challenge him. It's going to be really uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but he shouldn't just always bring up these Bible stories, should he? Because it's really annoying. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's get back to it. Uh, because apparently reading the Bible doesn't count unless everyone around you can hear that you're doing it. Oh, Gary. God can hear Gary. Um, it all touched him very deeply, to the point that he would frequently burst into tears while reading the Bible or listening to the pastor's sermons. Of course, while being outwardly way too religious, inside Gary was still the same old piece of that he had always been. He demanded sex from his wife multiple times each day, and his urges were expected to be dealt with on demand. Uh, Gary, what the f man? It didn't matter if they were out in public. If he wanted sex, then it was going to happen. He wanted sex in public, in the woods, in any illegal places he could think of. While in the woods, he also enjoyed scaring his wife by sneaking up behind her, and he took a lot of pride in his ability to move through the forest without making a sound. <laughs> Gary, you're an adult man. That's the Listen how quiet I am, Mum! Look, I'm barely making any sounds. Gary Ridgway's like 30-something years old, and he's like, Look how quiet I am! Mum, I mean wife! Oh, Jesus Christ, Gary Ridgway, what the f is wrong with you? <laughs> On the other hand, I imagine him just being this dim guy, like, look at me, <laughs> look how fun this is. Oh, but he's Gary Ridgway. But he's Gary. There's no awe about it. He's Gary Ridgway. He's pride of moving through the forest unstealthy so he can murder people. This insatiable libido, including the desire for sex in public places, had been confirmed by all of Gary's wives and girlfriends, so it wasn't some passing fancy. But even with Marcia complying with these demands, it wasn't enough. Gary frequently complained about the sex workers that he would see in the neighborhood, but he was also a frequent customer, like father, like son. In 1975, Gary and Marcia had a son together. This marriage lasted much longer than the first, but after eight years, it finally fell apart. Maybe it was because of the continued dominating influence of Gary's mother. Maybe it was all the sex workers he visited and he got STDs from. Or maybe it was because of the time that he put Marcia in a chokehold. Who can say? Really? I mean, what the f***? Marcia's like, why do I keep getting all these STDs? <laughs> ah, holy Marcia, you gotta leave. And you did. Good for you, but eight years? Just like, that's f***ed up. Marcia deservedly received primary custody of their son. Oh, they had a son? I didn't even realize. Did I miss that? I must have just switched off. Sometimes I do that. I'm like, oh no, I didn't pay attention for a minute. And then something would come up and it'd be like, did this? Did, did Kevin not bring this up? Or did I just like, it was like, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Gary was ordered to pay child support. This made him absolutely furious. <laughs> Yeah, Gary, you should be furious. Why should you pay to support your son at all, Gary? Not over the loss of his son, of course. I wasn't to find anything indicating that Gary gave a single f over losing his son at the time. It was just the loss of income that outraged him. He later admitted that he was so angry about having to pay child support and so afraid of being labelled as a loser after a second failed marriage that he contemplated killing both Marcia and his son, though he fortunately never did. The year was now 1981, and Gary's hatred of women was reaching an all-time high, but he still had, an, still had an insatiable need for sex and no wife to help satisfy his urges, so he began seeking out sex workers more and more frequently. Where are you getting the money for this? Like, if you're seeing sex workers multiple times a day, that shit's gonna be expensive, isn't it? You're a truck painter, Gary. He had already hated the sex workers because of their mere existence, despite the fact that they were clearly providing a service that he desperately craved. But his increased time with them only made him hate them more. He didn't want to pay them, but he also believed they were disgusted by him. Everything was reaching a tipping point, and it would only be a year before Gary was no longer able to contain his darkest urges. The Green River Killer 
August the 12th, 1982, began just as a typical day for Frank Leonard. He arrived at his job in the slaughterhouse in Kent as usual. Ooh, this is a different Kent. But I'm from Kent. There's a county called Kent in the UK. <laughs> it's where I'm from. This is a different Kent. Probably named after the original Kent. Or as I like to refer it, OG Kent. The slaughterhouse was mere yards from the Green River, and Frank wandered over toward the riverbank during his smoke break where he saw the body of 23-year-old Deborah Bonner floating. Deborah had disappeared a little over two weeks earlier, and she was known to police for a prior conviction for prostitution. Investigators immediately connected her death with those of Wendy Caulfield and Lean Wilcox, both of whom were 16-year-old sex workers. Lean's body had been discovered that January in a storage yard, with Wendy being found in July in the Green River. When it was just two bodies found six months apart in different locations, it was easy to see them as unconnected. Although they were both 16-year-old sex workers, that's a particularly dangerous demographic to be a part of, and they could have been victims of separate killers. Yeah, fair. I don't think the police would type there's, there's like there's no reason to see them con as connected, let alone see them as unconnected, not see them as unconnected. In fact, they were, as Gary was not responsible for Lean's death, which remains unsolved to this day. But because police now thought they had three victims of the same person, they began searching for a dangerous serial killer. They just had no idea there were already three more bodies to find, with the sixth victim disappearing the same day that Deborah's body was discovered. Three days later, on August the 15th, Robert Ainsworth began traveling down the Green River in a rubber raft, as he had many times before. He enjoyed fishing while floating down the river, though the only thing he had caught that day was a piece of old wood from a horse-drawn plow. Remarkably specific. That day he came across who he described as a balding, middle-aged man sitting on the riverbank next to a pickup truck. There was a boy sitting inside the truck, so Robert assumed it was a father and son who were out fishing. They exchanged pleasantries, lamenting that neither of them had caught anything, and the man got in his truck and drove away. As Robert continued down the river, his eyes met those of a young black woman beneath the surface of the water. Holy <laughs> dude. I was like, oh, okay, someone else out here? Oh, no. Oh dear. Believing it was a mannequin, he tried to snag it with his pole and pull it out of the water. But it's never a mannequin. I don't know, most of the time it's going to be a mannequin, right? Like, if, if this is actual real-world situation with you floating down the river, it's pro probably a mannequin or something else. It's not likely to be a body. It's probably I don't know why there'd be more mannequins, but I'd always be like, yeah, it's a mannequin. And then in my life, it'd be a mannequin. You'd be like, oh, yeah, it's a mannequin. Oh god, can you imagine discovering a body like that? That's something you never forget. That's f***ed up. Robert struggled to dislodge the body from under a rock, flipping his raft over in the process. Oh no! <laughs> You'd be like, now I'm in the water with a body! Robert ran to shore in shock and waited for around 30 minutes in the spot that the pickup truck had previously been parked, hoping for somebody to pass by so he could send them to call the police. When a family rode by on their bicycles, he flagged them down and sent for help. The first officer on the scene listened to Robert explain his discovery, but didn't seem to believe it until investigating the water himself. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Robert's just lying. He's just he's just wasted everyone's time for no reason. He's ruined his he's ruined his day. He's fishing he's floating down the river in a gay old time, like fishing some fish and some plows, and he's like, yeah, now now I'm just gonna f with the police for no reason. <laughs> He immediately called for backup, and as police swarmed the scene and sealed off the area, they discovered another body on the riverbank, that of 16-year-old Opal Mills. While the locations already made it clear that these were all victims of the same killer, and indeed the same as the previous victims found in the Green River, the modus operandi was completely identical. The victims were all sex workers who died of asphyxiation, and most had been placed into the river and weighed down with rocks. Not only were rocks used to attempt to conceal the bodies, but the killer was also taking pyramid-shaped rocks and inserting them into the vaginas of the deceased bodies. What the f The next day, the Green River Killer Task Force was formed, and it quickly became the largest police task force ever assembled at the time, eclipsing that of the task force that searched for Ted Bundy. We'll come back to them in a bit, but first we're going to look more at Gary's crimes and how he managed to get away with it for so long. How long has he been doing it, though? I'm really confused over the timeline today. Over the course of 1982, Gary would claim at least 10 more victims. Terry Milligan, Mary Meehan, Deborah Estes, Linda Rule, Denise Bush, Shonda Summers, Shirley Sherrill, Becky Mario, Colleen Brockman, and Sandra Mayer are known victims who disappeared after the Green River Killer Task Force had been created. There was also Giselle Lovehorn, who had been a second victim, though his body was not discovered until over two months after she disappeared. It's remarkable that Gary was able to avoid detection for so long, considering how strictly he adhered to his M.O. His victims were all either sex workers or runaways, people that he both hated and felt he could make disappear without people noticing for a while. He also made the common mistake of returning to the scene of the crime, and you're not going to like why. Oh no, I know why. I, I'm putting it together, right? Because, look, like, father like son with the sex workers, and wasn't his dad's mate at the mortuary, like, into necrophilia? And there were the pyramids in... He's... Yeah. That's where this is going, right? 
Remember when Gary had the little father-son talk about necrophilia? Yes, Kevin, unfortunately I do. Well, he would strangle his victims to death before engaging in intercourse with their bodies while they were still warm. But he would also come back days later to repeat the process, even if it meant having to brush maggots out of his way before engaging in his acts of perversion. At this point, he had custody of his son every other weekend, and he would often perform these acts on the way home after picking up his son from school while the child slept in the truck. Bruh. <laughs> Why do you don't f up your kids? Look, Gary, I know your dad f you up, but do you have to f up your son? I mean, the answer is yes, he's Gary f Ridgeway. Aside from being disgusting and reprehensible, that was also much more reckless than the rest of Gary's behavior would lead us to believe that he was. Despite his low IQ, he was extremely meticulous in the planning of his murders and seemed to have thought of everything. He would carefully spend time observing a new target before he was ready to commit murder. While some of his victims were girls that he had never met before, often he would become a repeat customer beforehand to establish a level of trust, and after killing them, he would sometimes contact their pimp to set up another date so as to give the impression that things had gone smoothly. To help women into his car for the first time, he would frequently show them a picture of his son to make him seem like a normal guy. On a couple of occasions, he even brought his son with him, but he decided that he didn't want the boy to see what he was doing and stuck with just using the picture. Bro. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go pick up some sex workers. Uh, come with me, son. What the f***? man when gary had decided that he was ready to kill his next victim everything had to be perfect unlike more impulsive killers he would abort his plan if something went wrong if he went to pick up a girl and she happened to be standing beside either a pimp or another sex worker then the murder was off but he would of course still pick them up and proceed with the date as planned to avoid any suspicion however he was so consumed by his hatred of women and desire to kill that aborting his plans in such a way would leave his entire body trembling which he had to explain to the sex workers as him simply being anxious. In the event his target was indeed alone like he had hoped, Gary would flash a wad of cash at them before pulling into an alley out of sight. He knew just how important it was not to be the last person seen with these girls. Once they came to his car, he would offer them large amounts of money before usually taking them back to his house. It didn't matter how much he offered them because he was never going to pay them. Instead, he would steal their cash and jewelry after killing them. That sounds like it could be a possible lead. But he didn't keep the jewelry or any other trophies from his victims. He also didn't pawn the jewelry, instead just leaving it around for people to find. It's known that he sometimes left the jewelry in the women's restroom of the truck plant where he worked, and it's likely that he left it in other public or semi-public restrooms as well. Gary said that his favorite thing was the idea that somebody could be walking around wearing one of those pieces of jewelry that they found in the bathroom. <laughs> That's weird, but like less weird than the other that Gary's been up to. <laughs> Not only did he not keep trophies that could be later used as evidence, but he took great care to ensure that no evidence was left behind to trace him back to the murders. If the girls managed to tear his clothes, he would cut their fingernails so that fibers could not be removed from beneath them. He always wore gloves to ensure that he didn't leave behind any fingerprints, and the only evidence that was left behind at the scenes were empty chewing gum wrappers and cigarette butts. Um, DNA? DNA, DNA. Cigarette butts. But this was pre-DNA, I assume. Um, I, wonder, I don't actually know how they caught Gary Ridgway in the end, but um this is very meticulous for a guy who is apparently very dim of course gary neither smoked nor chewed gum uh, it's a big, big brain this is a big brain move he just left those behind to throw the police off he was so careful that in one instance he realized that after leaving the scene that he may have left tire tracks in the mud realizing it was probably too late to go back to destroy the tracks he instead replaced all four tires on his truck dumping the old tires in different locations i'm doubting whether gary ridgeway is dumb <laughs> It seems maybe he just played dumb this whole time. Finding tire tracks for the first time at one of these crime scenes would have been a big deal, so I'm guessing Gary realized to not buy new tires either. If investigators saw an old trunk with brand new tires immediately after finding tracks for the first time, that would be both cause for suspicion and likely a purchase that was easy to track down. Wait, yeah, but <laughs> this is going to be lots of trucks with brand new tires. Oddly enough, like, I'm going to uh, replace the tires on my car this afternoon. But that doesn't mean I've, I've murdered anyone. <laughs> I just need new tires. I can't find any evidence one way or the other, but I'd wager that the replacement tires were a set of used ones that he picked up cheap at a junkyard. Gary enjoyed strangling these women, and he felt that he was quite good at it. He chose strangulation as his method of killing because it wouldn't leave behind any blood and because it felt much more personal. In one instance, when a victim managed to scratch his arm in self-defense, he hid the wounds by pouring battery acid over the cuts. Explaining how he got scratched could be difficult, but the burn was obviously just a mishap from replacing a truck battery that wouldn't draw any attention. Jesus Christ. 
That's intense. After a quiet winter throughout March and April, Gary would claim the lives of Wendy Stevens, Armour Smith, Dolores Williams, Gail Mathers, Andrea Childers, Sandra Gabbett, Kimi Kai Pitsaw, and Marie Malvar. And on 3rd of May, he picked up Carol Christiansen on Pacific Highway South. Her body would be found five days later, but this time the scene was quite a bit different. When Carol was found in a wooded roadside area, there was a paper bag over her head. Removing it revealed that she'd been strangled to death with a fishing line, and there was a trout placed across her neck. Another trout was placed on her left breast, and her arms were crossed over her stomach with ground beef placed on top of her left hand. There was also a wine bottle placed either on her belly or between her legs, with reports of the location differing. Despite how different this scene was compared to the Green River Killer's previous victims, investigators still knew it was the same person. She had been strangled with a cord, and the body showed signs of having been in the water, even though the river was miles from where she was found. There were a couple of conclusions that could be drawn from the macabre tableau with which they were presented. The first was that the killer may have been some sort of religious fanatic. They believed that the scene was meant to be a sort of twisted reference to the Last Supper, and the fact that sex workers were his targets opened up the possibility for them to believe that he was on some kind of sick religious crusade against the unrepentant sinners or something. But they also felt that he was mocking them. Gary did not slow down, and throughout the months of May and June, he took the lives of Martina Ortholy, Cheryl Wims, Shelley Antosh, Carrie Royce, and Constance Now. The bodies of any of the victims that I've mentioned thus far were not found until months or years after they disappeared. Gary had chosen to target these women because he felt that nobody would miss them, or anyone who knew them would be afraid to go to the police on account of either being a sex worker or a pimp, and he was mostly correct. Of the 30 victims he had taken thus far, Shelley Antosh was one of the few for whom anyone actually filed a missing persons report before the body was found. Throughout the remainder of 1983, Gary was responsible for the murders of Kelly Ware, Tina Thompson, April Buttram, Debbie Abernathy, Tracy Winston, Maureen Foley, Mary Bello, Pammy Avent, Delise Plager, Kimberly Nelson, and Lisa Yates. He had committed 41 murders in just a year and a half, and he hadn't showed any signs of slowing down. But suddenly, he did slow down. In February, he took the life of 16-year-old Mary West and 17-year-old Cindy Smith in March, and then there was nothing. For over two years, the Green River Killer had gone completely silent. So what was Gary up to? Part of it was some heat from the police. He had managed to find himself on the list of suspects and was likely laying low for a bit to keep suspicion off of himself. Then in 1985, he met and began dating Judith Mawson. Judith moved in with him, and the two seemed perfectly happy together. Anyone who saw them would agree, and at first, it seemed like the relationship was exactly what Gary needed. What Gary needs is to be in prison. Unfortunately, while the murder slowed down, they didn't stop entirely. In 1986, he took the life of 19-year-old Patricia Baxark, and in 1987, he killed Roberta Hayes. Then in 1988, Judith became his third wife, and unlike the other relationships, this one seemed like it was going the distance, or so they thought. After a three-year break, Gary would strike again, this time choosing 36-year-old Marta Reeves. He remained quiet for eight more years, until claiming his final confirmed victim in 1998, 38-year-old Patricia Yellowrobe. Three years later, Gary would finally be arrested as the Green River Killer, resulting in his third divorce. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Had he never been arrested, he and Judith would almost certainly still be happily married to this day. And that's it. That's pretty much the entire life of Gary Ridgway. He had a f childhood. He killed at least 49 innocent girls and women. And that's pretty much it. While his crimes make him easily one of the most detestable human beings I've written about, He's also by far the most boring person I've written about. But that's one of the things that made him so difficult to catch. Serial killers often have these giant narcissistic fantasies, usually involving taunting and playing games with the police. Many often struggle to hold down a job or a relationship, including platonic relationships, and their crimes are usually sloppy and full of evidence that results in them making a giant spectacle of themselves before quickly being arrested. But Gary wasn't like that. He probably was a narcissist, but not in the way that made him impulsive or unpredictable. However, he was friendly and generally well-liked, and he had the same boring job for over 30 years where he received awards for perfect attendance. The most boring awards a person could possibly receive. Yeah, it's like, what are you good at? Generic stuff. <laughs> Showing up. He was so plain and uninteresting that he was the type of person you could have a conversation with and then you'd forget you'd ever met five minutes later. This boring, ordinary existence made him difficult to pin down as a suspect since it went against a lot of conventional wisdom regarding serial killer profiles. And of course, he was extremely cautious. While his methods were almost always the same and always targeted sex workers and runaways, beyond that, his victims didn't fit any clear demographic. Most were aged 14 through 26, but some were in their 30s. 
He showed no racial preference in his victims, and he was careful not to leave any evidence behind. Almost any evidence anyway. If he wasn't willing to put on a condom despite contracting multiple STIs, I think he wasn't going to wear one during his crime since nobody knew that DNA evidence existed yet. I will say that if there's any lesson to be learned thus far from Gary, it's that we should probably stop giving advice to criminals on this show. Gary's IQ is only a few points away from being able to apply for disability benefits, and yet he was able to cover his tracks and elude police better than any of these supposed genius criminals. This is attributed entirely to his obsession with true crime stories, and the lessons contained within are perhaps our running gag actually runs the risk of becoming a giant blueprint for criminals. Don't say that, Kevin. <laughs> oh God, this is all done in good humor, and it. <laughs> Don't do crimes, for God's sake. Then again, all of the criminals that were easily caught had just as much opportunity to study true crime as Gary did, but their egos led them to believe that they were invincible and they didn't need any advice. Yeah, we're probably fine. I think I've rationalized that well enough to be able to sleep at night. With that out of the way, why don't we look at what the f the police were doing for almost the 20 years that it took them to finally track down the Green River Killer? Spoiler alert, it's going to make you angry. Yeah, it's like 49 people and the guy was almost like on benefits for being dumb what are you up to police the green river killer task force Years before the task force was even assembled, Gary had had his first run-in with the law in 1980. He was picked up after a sex worker accused him of choking her. Although he admitted to both hiring and choking the girl, he claimed that he only choked her because she had bit him. That seemed like a reasonable enough justification to the police, so they released him without filing any charges. In 1982, he was again picked up, this time for solicitation, after he approached an undercover police officer for sex. It would have been nice if they recognized Gary as a frequent customer of sex workers and one that was able to turn violence, but they didn't seem to quite make the connection. Or if they had, they were unable to act on it because of a lack of evidence. He would wind up on their radar again, and he was actually one of the first prime suspects. Why is that allowed? I thought, isn't that entrapment? Or whatever it's called? You know, where it's like the, the police encourage you to commit a crime? Or like they, like buying drugs off a cop. That happens, right? Which is weird. That feels like it shouldn't be allowed. Or maybe they're not allowed to encourage it. They can't go up to you and be like, hey, want to buy drugs? Do you have to go up to them and say, hey, can I buy drugs? <laughs> and in that case, it makes a bit more sense. But it still feels a bit sketchy, doesn't it? When the task force was first created in 1982, they were overloaded with information. It was, found, it was formed the day after finding three new bodies, and only a few days after another one. With the Green River Killer having already claimed a half dozen victims and the bodies continuing to pile up, the amount of various tips they were receiving was too much to handle. This almost certainly slowed the investigation down a bit, at least in the beginning, but in the spring of 1983, there was going to be a big break. Marie Malvar went missing on April the 30th, but her boyfriend saw the car she got into. It was a blue or green pickup truck with patches of primer on it, and the man driving was a generic-looking, balding man in his 30s or 40s. <laughs> How did he look? It's generic. It was the last time she was ever seen alive, and it would be five months until her body was found. But her family wasn't going to rate around. The boyfriends had seen the man that she was with and had a description of the rather unique-looking car, so they were going to drive around the city until they found it themselves, which they did. The car was parked in the driveway of Gary's home, and the boyfriend recognized him. They immediately informed the police, who went to pay Gary a visit. How did they not get him here? Like, what the f***? It's not entirely clear, but by the time the police arrived, the truck was likely gone. Gary told police that he had a maroon pickup truck that was broken down, so he usually took the bus, though sometimes he would bother borrow his father's brown and gold pickup. While this was true, he left out that he sometimes borrowed his brother's cyan pickup truck, a fact that his then-girlfriends later informed the police of. The entire time the investigators were talking to Gary, he was up against his fence with his arm behind his back. Marie was the girl that had left scratches on him, and at the time, they were still clearly visible. Gary denied ever having met or hired Marie, and the police eventually left, giving him the chance to burn his arm with battery acid. I, I, <laughs> why not just wear a long sleeve shirt? Wear a jacket? Like, what? <laughs> why? It's, it's a scratch. It's going to heal real fast. And just, just cover it. What's wrong? This was actually the second time that year that Gary had been the last person allegedly seen with one of his victims, and it was the second time that he was let go. Earlier that year in February, he had been stopped while on a date with a sex worker that, dis that later disappeared. Considering this was the largest task force ever at the time, and it cost a total of over $15 million, it's hard to imagine there wasn't someone working there who could have made a stronger connection between the victims and Gary. He was considered a top suspect, they just didn't have any evidence to go on. 
So, I don't know, follow him? You spent $15 million. What are you up to? You've got a top suspect. Follow that in 1984, the murders had slowed down, so there was more time for talking and sending letters. One was sent to the Seattle Times, containing a lot of graphic and disturbing details about the murders, details that had not been released to the public. When the letter was examined by John Douglas, one of the famed FBI profilers who was the basis for the show Mindhunter, he summarily dismissed it as being fake. Douglas said that the letter was a feeble and amateurish attempt by someone of average intelligence who had no connection to the Green River homicides. Once he was finally arrested, 17 years later, Gary admitted that the letter was his. Gary's smarter than people think. Do you think Gary faked his dumbness? Because he's doing some real smart moves. Although sending a letter is pretty dumb. <laughs> but like sending a letter that is so bad people can't trace it to you, it's kind of kind of genius. Later that year, he would contact the police on his own. He knew that he was already on their radar, so he called to offer any assistance in the investigation, as well as offering to take a polygraph test so he could clear his name. And since this was 1984, polygraphs were still considered to be fairly reliable. During the test, Gary admitted to frequently hiring sex workers, but he denied any involvement in the killings. He passed the polygraph with ease, and as a result, he was largely ruled out as a suspect for a time being. Yeah, and just in case you don't, polygraphs are basically nonsense. Like, they're 51% accurate or something, so that's uh, not good enough. And that's why things like pseudoscience are extremely dangerous. The interrogators also felt that Gary's openness with regards to how much time he spent with sex workers made him more credible. Oh, come on, are you police or what? Like, admitting to a smaller crime is like the playbook of getting away for a bigger crime for criminals. Come on. They felt that he was being honest and forthcoming, and if he was hiring sex workers as often as he claimed, it's only natural that his name would show up once or twice because of how often he was on the strip where the women hung out. It was decided that either Gary was innocent or that he must have been a sociopathic compulsive liar to be able to pass the polygraph and fool them. Obviously, we know it's the second one now, but as a guy that was generally friendly and well-liked, the police at the time didn't find it to be likely. Another important letter was also sent a few months later in October 1984. This one was sent to the Green River Killer Task Force, and the return address read Florida State Prison, Rayford, Florida. Inside was a letter from death row inmate Ted Bundy. Apparently sitting around waiting to be executed is boring, so he decided that he wanted to offer his help to the task force. Although they were skeptical, they were also running out of ideas. Robert Keppel, one of the detectives that had hunted Ted, and Dave Reichardt, who would later go on to become a congressman for 14 years, took the trip to Florida to see what old Teddy had to offer. Much to their surprise, Ted actually had a great deal to offer. Well, sort of, anyway. From inside his cell, using only publicly available information that he could gather, Ted had put together all of the same details the police had and come to the same conclusions. The detectives were genuinely impressed by all of the detailed work he'd done, but it was also all stuff they already knew. Ted Bundy is often credited as helping to solve the case, but he had very little to offer that they didn't already know. However, he was able to provide some extra insight into the killer's mindsets that did at least give them one actionable piece of advice, even if it never yielded any results. Ted told them that if they found a fresh body, they needed to leave it there and stake it out. He believed that the killer would continue to return to have sex with the victims for a few days. While this was correct, they didn't find any of the other victims fast enough. <laughs> Imagine if there was some alternate timeline where the FBI is like, oh, Ted Bundy's good at this. And they like released him like in that show White Collar. And so he has the tag and that he's under like house arrest or whatever. And he consults on murder crimes. It's the making of a TV show. Ted Bundy. Ah, ah but fortunately they killed him. The other somewhat useful, but also somewhat incorrect piece of information he gave was in regards to the break-in activity they were currently experiencing. There had been 43 victims in under two years, but the Green River Killer hadn't taken another victim in over seven months. Detective Reichardt asked Ted if the killer had stopped completely or was just taking a break to lay low for a bit. After hearing the question, Ted just laughed. He replied, He didn't stop unless he was born again and filled with the Holy Spirit in a very real way. He's either moved, he's dead, or he's doing something very different. The task force continued with very little success, and by 1986, the media was regarding it as a bit of a joke. They had brought several suspects in, but every one of them was cleared. The staff on the task force was cut by almost half, and as the years went on, it would continue to dwindle. But there was another break in the case later that year. In 1986, a sex worker contacted the police after one of her johns had tried to attack and strangle her. She managed to escape, and the description she gave of the attacker matched Gary. <laughs> Extremely generic man! Reichardt remembered that the name had come up before, and he tasked another detective with searching through everything they had on him. Lieutenant Matt Haney combed through all of the previous encounters with Gary, talking to every person that was involved in the other reports. By the time he had finished, he was convinced that Gary was the Green River Killer, but they still needed proof. 
They were able to tail him and witness him going to the strip to hire a girl, but that wasn't enough to constitute probable cause to arrest him for murder. It was already on record that he spent a lot of time with sex workers, and picking him up for solicitation now was just going to tip their hand. Instead, they were able to obtain a search warrant for his home, his locker at work, and his trucks. They quickly executed the warrant and were able to find absolutely nothing to tie him to the crimes. Gary hadn't kept trophies, he didn't write down his crimes, and because he strangled his victims, there weren't any hidden bloodstains to find. But even with none of that, there was one other very specific thing they were looking for. Gary took many of his victims back to his house before dumping the bodies, which resulted in microscopic carpet fragments showing up on several of the victims. Not only did it definitively link the victims to one another, but if they could match the fibers to a carpet in Gary's house, then they would finally have their man. It was in early 1987 when the search warrant was executed, around a year or so since he and his girlfriend and future third wife, Judith, had moved in. When she first moved in, she was surprised to discover that the living room carpet seemed to have been stripped away, but she also didn't think anything of it. After all, sometimes people throw out old carpets and buy new ones. She certainly wouldn't have suspected it had been removed because Gary had thought it would tie him to a series of murders. While the police thought that the warrant was a bust thanks to a total and complete lack of evidence to tie Gary to the crimes, the warrant did entitle them to one other thing. They were able to press him to provide a DNA sample in the form of a swab soaked in saliva. The technology was still brand new, but maybe it would prove useful at some point down the line. The Arrest and the Plea Oh, he's gonna get away with it, isn't he? He's not, well, he's gonna, he's not gonna get a death sentence, he's gonna make a plea deal. For like life in prison uh for, to avoid the death penalty which is a shame this guy deserves to die 49 people second most prolific serial killer in american history pop pop come on gary's dna had been taken in 1987 and then for a long time nothing happened the task force continued to shrink as it continued to fail to produce results they may have even believed that ted bundy was right and the killer had either died or moved somewhere else as there would only be two more victims over the next 14 years which could have been unrelated copycats but then, in 2001, a break finally came. New advancements in DNA technology emerged, the specifics of which we don't really need to get into. Gary's sample was tested for the third or fourth time at this point, but instead of coming back inconclusive, this time it finally came back as a match. When the police went to arrest him, they found him in the same place they would always find him. He was arrested on the strip for loitering for prostitution before finally being named as the Green River Killer. He was indicted on four counts of murder in connection with Master Chapman, Carol Christiansen, Cynthia Hines, and Opal Mills based on the conclusive DNA evidence. Three more victims, Wendy Caulfield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes, were added to the indictment, though these ones were less of a slam dunk. The additional names were added because the microscopic particles of paint found were matched to the brand that Gary used at work during the time frame the murder took place. Given how similar the circumstances of all the victims were, it was a strong case, but it wasn't as guaranteed as the original four. Well, good news is, four is enough to get you in the chair. Or on the gurney or whatever they do to kill people. All of Gary's family and friends were absolutely shocked by this news. Sure, he was a bit dim and maybe a little bit weird. But a murderer? That seemed impossible. He was just a nice, normal, and completely uninteresting guy. But nobody was more shocked than his wife, Judith. She stated that even though they'd been together for almost 17 years at that point, he still treated her like a newlywed. By all accounts, the two really seemed to be in love. Gary stated while in custody that he truly loved Judith, and the fact that he had nearly stopped killing seems to support this. Then again, he hadn't stopped hiring sex workers and is a bit of a lunatic, so what he actually felt is really anybody's guess. The arrest led to a rather predictable divorce, and as years went by, Judith began to publicly question whether their relationship was real or if he was just using her. Personally, I'm inclined to believe that it was real, and I think that deep down Judith felt so as well. Gary was broken to the point of being barely human, yet their relationship almost entirely stopped his most depraved urges. Maybe he's outsmarted me with his knowledge of true crime and forced himself to stop killing out of self-preservation, but I think Judith said what happened best in a 2007 interview with the local TV reporter. I feel I've saved lives by being his wife and making him happy. While her statement is almost certainly true, we're also getting dangerously close to humanizing this murderous piece of shit. So it's time to put an end to that real quick. Gary killed a whole lot of people and it was time for him to pay the price. But what price was he going to pay? Washington was a death penalty state and people absolutely believed that he deserved to die. Unfortunately, Gary had carefully followed the casual criminalist's rules for criminals, so he didn't write down his crimes, he didn't include other people in his crimes, he didn't tell people about his crimes, and police may have been confident that he was responsible for dozens of murders beyond the seven for which he was indicted, but there wasn't any way to prove it without a confession. It was the defense's one and only bargaining chip, and they were absolutely going to use it. 
In exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, Gary would confess to all of the murders and lead the police to their bodies. This did not go as smoothly as planned, though not necessarily because he was being cooperative. The problem was that he didn't remember the girls. He didn't know their names and he couldn't recognize them from pictures. In his mind, sex workers were things, not people, so there was no reason to remember them. What Gary did care about was what he had done and where he hid the bodies. That was the only part that was important to him, and he was able to remember the locations and how he killed them with a level of detail that, only w- that was only made more surprising by the fact that he couldn't remember any of their faces. When all was said and done, he confessed to the murders of 48 girls and women. At the trial, the names of every one of Gary's victims were read aloud, with him having to say guilty after each and every one. The process took over an hour, and he was sentenced to 48 consecutive life sentences, plus 480 additional years for tampering with evidence. For many people, this finally provided closure on one of the darkest chapters in living memory. But for others, is a gross miscarriage of justice. Washington was supposed to be a death penalty state. This monster confessed to murdering 48 girls, some as young as 14, and repeatedly desecrating their corpses. If that wasn't deserving of the death penalty, then what the hell was? A lot of people were outraged over the deal that was made, and it brought into question if this was the end of the death penalty in Washington. As of 35 days ago at the time of writing this, the answer to that is yes, the death penalty is officially off the books in Washington. However, the death penalty has been abolished, reinstated, abolished, reinstated, found unconstitutional as written, written and reinstated, and now abolished again, so God only knows what the future holds for the state of Washington and their stance on capital punishments. <laughs> I feel like that's what we... <laughs> it's like the future, and it's like as much as like I like to see people killed... <laughs> some of the people on this show deserve to die it's like bringing back the death penalty seems like a very backwards move but at the end of the day the agreement was made for the benefit of the families of the 41 victims who weren't on the original indictment the prosecuting attorney norma lang said in her statements that they could have gone ahead with the seven indictments and received the death penalty but there would be too many lingering questions for the dozens of families that didn't receive closure and it's not as if every death that had been attributed to the green river killer was actually perpetrated by gary either most of them were but there were a few that he was able to confirm were not his victims it would be easy to say that maybe he was just lying but his rationale for denying responsibility for some of the victims was sufficiently up to be 100% believable. He stated that he had a lot of pride in what he'd done. He didn't want to steal them from somebody else deserving by taking credit for the murders. Hearing that makes me really, really wish he'd been executed by the state. Yes, but I understand the prosecution's decision. As Norm stated after the trial, Gary Ridgway does not deserve our mercy. He does not deserve to live. The mercy provided by today's resolution is not directed at Ridgway, but toward the families who have suffered so much. Unfortunately, it's unlikely that all the families of his victims have received closure. The 48 counts of murder to which he pled guilty included 46 of the 47 I gave earlier, as well as two Jane Doe's. However, in 2010, the body of Becky Marino, one of his earlier victims, was found after almost three decades. Although Gary was indicted for this murder and again pled guilty, it shows that he was not entirely forthcoming with the information he provided. It's believed that he killed up to 70 women in total and he's made claims of killing up to at least 80. Wrap up. Gary Ridgway was the United States' second most prolific serial killer and the one who was active for the longest period of time. And yet he is also one of, if not the least remarkable serial killer that we've covered on this channel. I think the most important thing to take away from this case is how important it is to understand the difference between science and pseudoscience. Okay. We're not are we talking about the lie detector thing? We're not for how much faith the police put in the polygraph results back in 1984. There's a very strong chance that Gary would have been caught much sooner. Likewise, the reliance on criminal profiling and the dismissal of the letter written to the Seattle Times were major roadblocks as well. Criminal profiling has been popular for decades, and Mindhunter was a fantastic show, but when researchers start pointing out the complete lack of empirical research or evidence and start to refer to it as pseudoscience, it's probably a good idea to at least be a little skeptical of the results. After all, polygraphs were popular for a long time but they are total and complete nonsense. More importantly, Gary didn't really fit any profile. He was too ordinary and too plain, which went a lot farther than it should have in helping to avoid police detection even when he was on their radar. And I get it. I wouldn't expect the serial murdering necrophile to be able to hold a steady job for three decades either and to be in a stable relationship, nor would I expect that person to be so meticulous about eliminating evidence and being such a dum-dum. It's easy to give in to these assumptions, but you never know who is capable of what, so it's best to rely on things like forensic science rather than gut feelings. 
Of course, while Gary was able to adhere to most of the casual criminalist rules, there is one rule that was broken repeatedly throughout this episode. Don't your kids. And as an addendum to that rule, I really didn't think needed to be written down, if you think that your spouse is screwing up your kid, don't compound the problem by telling them how cool necrophilia is. Yes. And with that, that is where we end today's episode, the second most prolific and most boring serial killer in American history. Thanks for being here. If you enjoyed this show, please leave it a review. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.